Hi, we're back. (laughs) (laughs) We're back for episode five. Episode five? Episode five. Episode five. And it's going to be a good one. I feel like there's an omen on this because every time we film, like film this, record this now, I'm always like, it's gone really rainy outside. (laughs) It was really nice weather. And I'm about to say the same thing. It's miserable. It's disgusting. (laughs) But it's It's August. (laughs) Uh, We've had a lovely summer. Well, we've had a lot of heat. I feel like. I think it's a bit hit and miss. It was glorious during like April, May. Yeah, true, true. But we had a week of like 35, 36 degrees, which yeah. I'm here That's for. Not nice. No, I'm not. I'm, oh, my top lip not. can't handle it. Too sweaty. Like that is too much for me. <laughs> I like a 25. <laughs> I feel like it's a blessing that we didn't have to commute into work because I, w- I couldn't have been on the tubes in London, like I in that heat. It would have been hideous. No, but then. Been. I was, anytime I did see someone in office, I was like, how's the air gone? <laughs> oh, it's the little things that count. <laughs> yeah, literally. Uh, anyway. Times. Anyway. Yeah. What are we talking about today? So, on today's episode, yeah. uh, we wanted to talk about Inside Misguided, Made in Manchester, which is a documentary series, a docu-series, I think they call them. Yeah, um, down which, kids. Yeah, totally, totally down with the young'uns, um, which uh, aired on Channel 4 recently, and it has caused a bit of a stir, both on Twitter and amongst our friends and families, I think it's safe to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the series takes a look behind the scenes of the fast fashion brand Misguided, um it introduces some of the characters that work there some of the kind of board level kind of folks as well as those who are working in the office as it stands uh we go into their projects and their campaigns um and we also look at their global ambitions um as they try and bounce back from a pretty terrible financial period (laughs) back in about that though they never really explain what happened oh i I had to google it yeah i I thought there was going to be a big episode where they were like and then this line failed and we gave a million to an influencer and it all went wrong and they didn't. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, they kept dabbling in every episode. I Googled it. Apparently, yeah, lots of different, but just poor decision making, I think, yeah. on like stock that they, the amount of stock they bought and couldn't sell. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but it was a lot of money. So clearly they were hoping for a bounce back period and Nitin, who's a CEO, he's in it quite a lot and he comes across relatively well in some parts, not so good in others. Um, but he's constantly saying throughout the whole series, about wanting misguided to be like a disruptor uh, like mm. a disruptor company a disruptor in the fashion industry um and we'll go into like more detail in the episode and the, the our discussion about that hopefully um so for those who haven't watched the um series yet um you're probably going to ask us why what's the big deal like it's misguided it's really cool like sounds really awesome <laughs> um well First thing first is, you know, people have been asking whether Channel 4 should ever have actually really created a docuseries based on fast fashion, which seems at odds with the fact that, you know, Channel 4 has put on a lot of environmentally kind of related programmes recently. Um, It hosted the climate change debate before the general election last year. Um, The big ice cubes. The big big ice cubes. God, what a nightmare that was. Um, (laughs) And obviously loads of attention last year on climate change, generally speaking, internationally. So, you know, it was interesting, I think, just from the forefront that Channel 4 decided to even post this show. Um, And, you know, for us, we wanted to kind of delve into the issue of did it even really touch on the negative aspects of fast fashion or did it glamorise it a little bit too much? Um, So, yeah, that's what we're hoping to discuss in the episode um, you know, we want to look at whether it actually empower it, the brand is actually empowering women. Um, it, you know, is it providing affordable style? Um, and again, is it glamorizing fast fashion? Yeah, and that that's is that and that's the key thing we'll discuss. But um, so just for context, we've, this has come about because one of our colleagues and friends, Tanya, um, initially brought the series to our attention. Um, I'm actually going to hear from her, and Tanya's really good to kind of highlight some of the important issues which arise from the documentary. Um, and just to be transparent, there is so much that happens in this that you could unpick. And we, in the conversation that we we have, we don't even we don't even touch on hardly any of it, just because there is so much. Mm-hmm. Um, we love we would have loved to explore a bit more, looking at kind of um, oh god, I've got a mind blank. What would we like to talk about? <laughs> 
<laughs> we... um, oh yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah. We'd love to talk more about whether, um, you know, is sustainable fashion actually exploiting workers? We never got into that. Um, a lot of the things about is fast fashion actually giving an avenue for people who don't have a lot of money to access um, fashion? Um, you know, a lot of people can't afford to pay the price of that more ethical fashion branding. Um, so it was one of those where literally everything that came up, the minute we switched off the recording, we were like, oh, I wish I'd mentioned this, wish I'd mentioned that. So definitely we won't cover everything, um, but we hope you enjoy. Uh, and yeah. From the onset of this programme, you're thrown into this really exciting, creative, young and dynamic work environment. And you think for a second that actually this might be a real force for change. But as the programme continues, you begin to realise that you're learning less and less about how the clothes are made and the process that goes into them. You're learning more about the social media aspects of it um, and the public relations that goes with the campaigns. I think this is a bit of a missed opportunity because I think businesses like them have a real opportunity to create change amongst consumers. There's a moment where they talk about the fact that this is what consumers want, but I feel that it's actually just perpetuated by social media and business models like this. One thing that was really noticeable for me is that I didn't see anyone that looked like me in those clothes. I'm from a, a different race and background and I most definitely wouldn't fit in any of those clothes. I've got curves and bumps and lumps everywhere. So that made me really disengage with the whole process because I couldn't see myself in, in any of those clothes and neither did I see anyone looking like me. So for this week's discussion then, uh, we welcomed our former colleague um, and our friend and she's actually CEO and co-founder of her own brand, um, Abby Morris. Abby and her partner James um, took the leap into the world of startups um, a few years ago and have created Compare Ethics, which is an online platform shining a light on the ethics of fashion brands. Um, Abby is one of Google's 2019 female founder accelerators, which is just like amazing, uh, and was announced as one of Computer Weekly's most influential women in tech rising stars in 2019. Uh, she's a total female boss. We love her. Um, she gave us, she's, She's given us so many insights into the world of fashion that we wouldn't know from our kind of day jobs. She's given us top tips for consumers and businesses. Um, and in this episode, she's going to help us unpick some of the really difficult and kind of complex realities that Inside Misguided presents. Yeah. Uh, so a really big thank you to Tanya and Abby, and we hope you enjoy the discussion. So we're joined here today by, oh, I've literally just started to drop my <laughs> bottle of water. <laughs> Sorry, guys, anyone heard that? So we're joined here today by Abby. Uh, Abby is CEO and founder, co-founder, won't write James out, of uh, Compare Ethics. So Abby, please do tell us a little bit about yourself and why you are an expert on this topic and how we're going to evaluate Misguided and why we need to listen to everything you've got to say. <laughs> Very kind. What a fab intro. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I'm Abby, as Casey mentioned. I'm the co-founder at Compare Ethics, and we are a platform that verifies the claims made about sustainability. Um, this means that for brands, we help them weed out greenwashing that can exist in their supply chains and get them a return on investment for good practice and then for consumers we act as a trusted information point so think of us as the uh, conscious trust pilot if you will Love that. Um, <laughs> in terms of why you should listen to me I'm not quite sure maybe by the end we'll find out <laughs> <laughs> no you're you I'm always seeing you like speaking on panels about this and leading the way and you've been kind of touted for everything under the sun so you know we've definitely got <laughs> coming um so basically it'd be interesting to know like why you got into sustainable and ethical fashion why this was something that you decided you wanted to make a difference in or kind of where the idea of compare ethics originated from yeah so it was really born out of pure frustration so as a consumer I was really fed up with the information that was out there or the lack of information that was out there. Um, 
particularly when claims were being made about where the planet comes from. I've always been super passionate about the planet and the role that I can play, but I was really fed up with how much greenwashing, misleading claims were out there. And so I originally started with just a really scrappy blog. It was literally just somewhere to put thoughts, put a list of brands that I trusted, and then that evolved. Um, Then I tried to get my partner, James, into the mix. He's the techie out of the two of us. (laughs) So he had more of a view on how we can use technology to make this even better. So that's how Comparethics all came about, was taking my frustrations and James's technology skills <laughs> to create one platform that we can actually try and measure what we're doing here and get some better practices on the go. Which is very much needed. I like it as well because this, this is what I always find with the environment especially. There's so many, sorry, everyone just heard my little uh, thingy there um there's so many different areas that you could look at be quite overwhelming but it's really good to focus in on something and then you can actually make a sustained difference in that area um Mm. so just really really quickly compare ethics how does it actually work on a platform do you have a methodology Mm -hmm. an algorithm do you compare different things is it actually just the environment or are you also looking Mm at kind of modern slavery and supply chains and all that how how far do you like do you define ethics Yeah, so good question. Yeah, so we have our own in-house methodology. So currently that's spanning across three core categories. So planet-friendly, socially good and animal cruelty-free. And then within each of those categories, there are weighted tags. So the hardest and most impactful thing that a brand can do in say the planet friendly category is have a fully closed loop system, i.e. they take their product back, they remake and reuse. Um, and, and we prescribe these tags um, across the categories and that's really how we do our assessment. And the brand and the core of what we do, the brand has to send evidence third-party evidence certifications around how they're actually meeting this standard, um, which really helps us enable a degree of transparency mm-hmm. with consumers so that they know that they're applying these standards throughout their supply chain. Yeah, and I suppose if you haven't got that evidence, you can't verify it. So you wouldn't necessarily say, just because they say it, that counts. It's going that bit further, which is good because that's what consumers want. Often we see all these words, but we don't really know what they mean. But if you can have somebody say to you, actually, we've checked this, we've verified what they're saying is legit. Don't worry. Yeah. And you're curbing out greenwashing, right? Like you're aiming to kind of like trickle down all the different information you can gather to just to prove exactly what your environmental credentials are I guess and that's how you set the standard exactly exactly so for example it's quite interesting we had a brand recently who um, on their website they publicly have a take back scheme but when we did some digging actually they haven't actually formalized a contract with that take back partner Mm. they have like a really high minimum and this is the thing there are so many SMEs that have very good intent and I'm sure this will be something that we go into but unless we have that contract that we can see that you've actually started this take back scheme and you're taking back orders and it's working Mm. um, for us, we can't add that to the algorithm until that time. Um, But that doesn't discourage best practice as anything. Hopefully we're trying to aim to incentivize it by saying, cool, I'm going to get more points on compare ethics for giving more information and working on the stuff that I'm passionate about. And this is why we wanted you in to discuss the misguided doc because (laughs) so many things to say about that documentary. Um, So first of all, you watched it, didn't you? I remember. Yeah, yeah, we were messaging just outraged. But but then I, oh, okay. So I don't even know where to start with this. Where do we begin? (laughs) Yeah. So for a bit of background, um, the documentary that we were talking about earlier in our introduction is all about the misguided brand which is a fast fashion brand and the ceo of misguided is really determined as he says to kind of be a disruptor in fashion um he wants to empower women and really i think it was very different reactions to it mm-hmm. um if you took twitter the reaction was very much how can channel 4 be endorsing this it's fast fashion fast fashion isn't ethical or it isn't sustainable environmentally or in terms of workers rights 
But then on the other hand, when I spoke to people like my sister, who is, you know, an 18 year old girl who loves fashion, doesn't necessarily understand how a supply chain works. She watched it and thought, oh, wow, like, look at all these girls like me getting to work mm -hmm. in the fashion industry. Um, that looks really cool. The job looks really exciting. It's something I'd love to do. So that's the initial debate, isn't it? Did the documentary mm -hmm. glamorize fast fashion? Or actually, was it really empowering to women? And can fast fashion be empowering and ethical? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much to pick apart. I feel like the yeah, like you've you've highlighted the key kind of two issues with it. But more than anything, I feel like where there was this the glamorized aspect of it was what kind of hit me because it came across as if the company obviously clearly there had been a dark period they'd lost millions of pounds they'd been bought up on their ethical practices in the past so clearly the the show was about them building themselves back as this kind of renewed business that prioritizes things like empowerment togetherness ethical sourcing you know green processes all these things whereas I felt like as soon as it got to kind of episode two and episode three where you had like the interview with Nitin and you had all the girls come and kind of coming in it just seemed like it was a cloud or it was just kind of as Abby as you've already said like it seemed good from the outside but where you kind of dug a little bit deeper it just seemed completely backwards from the fact mm -hmm. that actually misguided is their customer base is females young females Katie as you said your sister for example mm. but there's no women on the board. There's no women in senior positions beyond, I think one of the directors that was interviewed was a woman. The rest are all men. And anyone that, I think that there's, a, there's a gender pay gap that we can go into that Misguided have, but it just seems so backward just from that offset of like the makeup of, you know, there's 200 and, or 300 employees. The majority of them are women, but they're all in like the lesser paid roles. They're all in the, the, the worker roles, if you like. No direction at all in the brand comes from a woman how is is that empowerment is that what that means yeah so I suppose the first question really that I'd love to pose to you Abby is is that typical of fast fashion is it that misguided is actually just the same as every other brand or do you think actually it is going a bit above and beyond as it kind of claimed to I think they're a, they're a product of the system right so they are just competing just like all of that and they they're very very aware and actually they talk about it very openly you know we're mm -hmm. very capitalist driven you know that does mean a race to the bottom I think it's really interesting how we also just skirted over <laughs> away from any um, underlying principles around what does it mean to haggle on a on a price point by 10p what does that do to the pressure on that manufacturer you know there are so many things like that that again we can dive into but they are just a product of a system they are they're a capitalist business and they're driven by that. So I think, I, I think again, when we get into this, I think we're going to be looking at really what are those systems drivers and how can we make sure that we're encouraging better systems because that is ultimately the only way that we're going to get out of this because they have a bottom line mm -hmm. and he's driven, the CEO is driven by that. And as a, as a CEO myself, I would, I would be too, you know, don't get me wrong, we're, we're 100% believe that there's a better way of doing it. But in order for you to keep the lights on, you have to have to still hit it. So um, I think it's um, that system that's going to be really important to unpick and challenge yeah. brands um, going forward. So how much of that is to do with the customer, though? Because I feel like a lot of the, the justification throughout the episodes was that you know, a lot of the reasoning behind why Misguided acts the way it does and the same as the competitors, Boohoo, all the others, is because the demand is there. So you see all these kind of Instagram bloggers and influencers who are posting the latest fashion or the latest trends. Customers want that. That could change week by week. So, you know, and Nissan was saying, you know, the, they don't want to do this. They don't want to be like this. If they could do it a different way than they would, it's that their customers want this. Their customers are the ones demanding the fast fashion. They're the ones that are wanting cheap clothes that they can wear once maybe and then throw away. So how much is, of it is actually to do with the, le the business leading and actually saying, we're going to stop doing this now? Or is it to do with the customer? And how do we curb the, what the customer wants? So I love this question and 
I think that they're really reductionist in that view. So reducing the whole thing to the consumer is just one part. You have your employee base, you have your investor base, you have um, you have the government role to play, you have the wider business community. So you have the there is no silver bullet for these issues. Mm -hmm. We're talking, going back to my previous point, we're talking about system issues. So reducing it all on the responsibility of the consumer is just really not useful. And it's actually not going to make you competitive in the long run because other people across government, across industry, your employee base for attracting the top talent, all of these things over the medium term are going to come around and bite you if you don't have the right systems in place transparency in place all the things that are really important for a a 21st century business to to survive so um placing it on the consumer might work for them and might have worked for them um in previous years but if you want longevity i don't really see how that's going to work for them Mm. yeah and i think as more and more uh information is coming to light, i think that's the problem isn't it like my sister has said earlier she will use these brands just because that's what she sees advertised. It's, you know, on the programs, they're advertising around the programs she watches or what her friends wear, the bloggers, the influencers she follows. She doesn't realise actually who is making the clothes. She just thinks that it will be some factory that this individual company uses. She doesn't understand actually that supply chains can go all over the world, the environmental impact of that, the kind of social impacts of that. So actually this is where something like compare ethics is great because it's bringing that information to light. But that's where I also think it's unfair for the company to be like, Oh, well, it's what the consumer wants. Cause I think often consumers don't really understand the whole process and why would they, they're not the ones yeah. that are in charge of making clothes. I think sometimes you've got to have a bit of corporate social responsibility and take it upon yourselves to do it actively. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, especially as people do start to become more aware and start asking questions as they're starting to learn what questions to ask. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, and do you know what was interesting? I'm sure I remember there was a, a comment that the CEO made, which was like when he was talking about sustainability and environmental issues, which was, oh, yeah, our staff are asking about it. Our employees are asking about it. Yeah. So if you think about it, it's like if this is totally market driven that you have this business model this way, but you've just admitted also in the same breath that actually your most important asset, which is your people, are asking you mm. what you're doing about it. You can love a CEO, you can love a job, but if there's a job that comes up where they can also make a positive impact because they are the best talent in the industry, you've got a problem. So I think, um, yeah, they'll have more to think about at that, I'm sure. And I thought it was interesting as well, the fact that, you know, clearly the idea of ethical sourcing from their factories and the sustainability agenda isn't embedded in what they were doing because it took for them to be pulled up as a company to be pulled up on those issues for them to then say, okay, maybe we should get someone in to do CSR who's really like cutthroat and knows exactly what they're doing. It wasn't mm-hmm. something that was just like a, we should probably be thinking about this as a priority. They had to be, you know, they had to do it wrong to go and get caught public, very publicly. And then they then had to fix it. And I think that just goes to show, I mean, I, I don't know how Boohoo do it. It'd be really interesting to see how all the others do it, but that, embedded nature or lack thereof an embedded process is the challenge I have so why aren't businesses you know measuring and reporting on these things why aren't they setting their own targets as part of like a business plan so that it is embedded rather than seen as like a burden or like an additional thing they do just to look good or as a tick box like how do we incentivize that is that something that needs to be incentivized is it something that should just be as as important as your bottom line and how do we go about making sure that is the case I love this question as well. I think about it all the time. <laughs> it's so hard. Um, it's really hard. No, Especially I, when you're I, an SME I, and you don't have a lot of people to, to work mm. on it. So leadership in that sense surely is really important. Your CEO needs to be saying, no, this is like what we do best. We need to be like the gold standard in these things. Yeah. I think also there's a role of government here that yeah. we, we, just, we, do, we do just shy away from. I think... And this is whether you're an SME, whether you are, you know, someone who's been in this for a very long time um, and is a very large corporate, there is a role of government that is clearly lacking on these issues because if self if self regulation was going to do it, it would have done it by now. Mm. Yeah. If, if any 
if anything, we've just done a really good job at creating an industry that is so opaque that no one is going to get to the bottom of anything quickly. We need to, we do need to be incentivizing for better standards. And I think that it's a really great opportunity. I think particularly now in the role of government to take highly targeted action on these things um, is, is that is, is clearly a missing link. For example, this is my thing that I get caught up on the most. If you look at um, the UK Bribery Act, an amazing piece of legislation that has low global global presence and global responsibility, legal responsibility for directors around what goes down in your supply chain with regards to how corrupt you are as a business. There isn't I, I can't see any reason why we can't take this as inspiration for better standards mm. for how we manage people, how we manage the planet. Um I think we just need to take leadership on all fronts to get there. So I hope that that happens quickly. <laughs> well, this is, so it's really interesting you mentioned it because of course this almost came to light, didn't it? With the, um, what was it? The fast fashion inquiry? Was it the environmental audit committee did? Yeah, um, yeah. And they put forward a whole host of measures, um, including a kind of like traffic light system, like we get on yeah. food, which shows you kind of nutritional values. And they were going to do that mm-hmm. for fashion. And I think I'm right in saying that the government didn't adopt any of the measures. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. No. Yeah. So what happened there? What a wasted opportunity? And actually, because I think it, in a way, I think it is good when a company admits, okay, we weren't concentrating on this before, but now we've kind of seen the light and we are concentrating. I think it's fine to say that if it's not just playing lip service. And I think where I got very frustrated with the misguided doc was you had... Um, I think it was when maybe the operations officers went in and vetted a British um, factory uh, so they could kind of work with them for the Christmas range of dresses, which was like a a huge selling point, the biggest bit of the year, essentially. Um, And they showed this really robust vetting and all the paperwork and they had, you know, the factory owner looking all very, oh, they're always extra compared to all the others, you know, really hiding it up. But you had no information about how many of their orders were going to that British factory versus how many were going to other supply chains around the UK. There was no information about um, some of the actual processes they were really looking for. And I just thought, is that sincere or was that just camera pleasing? Yeah. Because it could, I mean, because it totally, mm-hmm. kept, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, and, and it was just that one factory and they went back and it was tiny. Yeah. It seemed tiny. It seemed like there weren't that many people there at all. Which um, implied that they probably weren't going to be manufacturing the bulk of the exactly, goods that they exactly. needed. Yeah. And it was, it was in also, Leicester as well, wasn't it? And the reason that was mm. so kind of notable was because Leicester's previously been this secret that's not really a secret about modern slavery in the UK, mm. um, which yeah. I think is where they'd got caught out before. I think. But, they, but I felt like they tried to cover that up. Sorry, we'll, we'll, we'll get back onto it. But they tried to cover it up with the fact that homegrown fact like getting your clothes made in the town next to you is better for the environment than it is to get them done Mm -hmm. in china or somewhere else in asia and that they felt like that it was the best thing to to go to local suppliers and get them delivered a few miles down the road so it was very covered up with that i felt like they tried to make it out as a good thing if that makes sense yeah which happens all the time and I think whether there was cameras there or not I think this goes back as a really great example of a really bad um a failing area of the system so there's no it's widely understood that you will when you're having an audit it's pre-planned people generally are not just doing surprise audits to really make sure that they get an uncovering of what is actually going on day to day. And I think that the auditing system in general, same with the certification industry, is it's got a lot of work to do to, to get right. And I think this is where there has been a lot of loopholes, a lot of ways to work around. You know, again, you know, I can't in some ways, it's quite, quite um, out there, but I can't really necessarily fault 
misguided because they are just working in the same parameters of the system that exists and that everybody else is working to so of course that they're going to have the best for the cameras on Mm. show of Mm -hmm. course they're going to have the best pr set up and they're going to have the ceo walking around which i'm sure he never does (laughs) um and i'm sure he never just shows up anywhere himself and and you know i get it he's a ceo he's he's moving things quickly don't get me wrong it's not to say that but more to make the point that actually again it comes down to how are we tracking our auditing systems mm-hmm. what are the standards that we're expecting in place and what what has been going wrong up until now and how can we fix that and that again is something that across the fashion industry this is not a fast fashion issue um is really difficult yeah um yeah. and want to fix that as well yeah and that's the thing that's that's not to say that that individual factory they went to isn't good and doesn't have good practices because i think actually from kind of things i've read about it following up that particular factory is actually known as being one of the best ones in leicester but i think where the documentary has failed and where i can understand why people have said it's glamorized the industry is you know fast fashion does have an impact on the environment they could have explored that a bit more they didn't really Mm -hmm. you know leicester for example we do have modern slavery in the clothing industry Mm -hmm. in the UK happening on a daily basis that documentary could have said look this is what we do on this factory and here's all the backstory as to why and they could have introduced kind of whether it was headline stats about problems that have happened before whether it touched on the environmental audit committee investigation that took place um, with that parliamentary committee it just it was very superficial it touched on things very lightly Mm -hmm. and didn't really go into why these things are important, why we should be looking at these and why fast fashion has traditionally or currently been associated with these issues. And I think that's also where I really struggled with its whole female empowerment message. So on the one hand, it is a local Manchester or greater Manchester business and it has got local people predominantly women involved in its business in an industry which is quite elite is quite difficult to get into and it is kind of pushing them up like rising stars that's how it was portrayed um but then Tanisha as you kind of mentioned earlier there's no women on the board um and I do wonder if it's a situation where they're so grateful to be there do we think they might get a bit exploited like we talked about the fact that the gender pay gap at time of filming was 46 percent that doesn't really feel like empowerment. But then is is there a class issue here? Is it the fact that lots of people criticised it because they are working class girls and didn't come across as, you know, quote unquote, as professional as people expected them to? There was lots of swearing. They were quite crude at times. So, yeah, I don't know. It's really complex. Was it empowering or not? That's the question I'm trying to get at, but I, I can't answer it. <laughs> so on the one hand, I'm like, no. Mm. On the other hand, I'm like, maybe. Yeah. Didn't know what your thoughts were on that. Was it empowering? Can it not be because of the industry? I think that, I think there's no doubt that if you are in a demographic that had certain, you know, pre predisposed outcomes, and then that company has obviously enabled you to, to overcome social mobility challenges, without a doubt, you, you, there, that, in and of itself needs to be applauded because social mobility is one of the you know toughest things going on that actually there's really not not enough done mm-hmm. on that in the UK. I think in the same breath, um, it's a nuanced picture, as you say, because there's no way that if you look at the decision making, also if you look at most makers are going to also be women, right? So if we're going to going to promote products that empower women we need to also make sure that the women who are making these clothes are also empowered, that they can afford to feed their family, that they can save for a rainy day, that they can send, you know, send their kids to a, to a, to school consistently. You know, these are all things that I think in the UK from a starting point of social mobility or what, what might be deemed as a living wage is actually much easier to get access to, to some basic needs in in, but not to to compare it to the developing markets, which is where the bulk of this production is going on, and how we're just not having that conversation. That was not a conversation on those shoots around 
how fast those factory workers might have had to work to get to that point and in what conditions. And I think until we acknowledge that, I think it's going, we're missing a whole piece of the conversation there as well. So it's it's obviously great that there is social mobility in some areas, but if you're going to promote it as a core tenant and core pillar of your brand, that has to be backed up across the areas of your business, so the board, right down to the person that made your clothes. Yeah, ideally even further than that, who made your fibre. But <laughs> let's just start somewhere. Let's just start somewhere. Let's just let's start somewhere. But I mean, this is the scale of it, right? The amount of people that are affected by that. Um, so I agree. Very nuanced, but yeah. a lot to do still. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, think- that. Oh, sorry, Tanisha, go. No, no. I was just going to say I thought it was interesting that all those things are very like internal within a business they're external in terms of your supply chain and what have you but it's the decisions that you're making internally whereas a big part of the show I felt like in the latter two episodes was about the fact that Misguided changed its whole outlook from being focusing just on the really skinny petite girls and they've opened their brand up to be being about real-sized women who are a little bit bigger a little bit curvier and they bought kind of models in for that. They've got a whole department just working on those clothes that are that are for bigger women. And that like it seemed like that was so, and it is a good thing they're doing that, frankly. Like I think that's so much better. They ran a huge campaign about like stretch marks and like body our, positivity, our body positivity yeah. which is fantastic. Like that's exactly what we need at this moment in time and will continue to need. But I felt like that was such a good public facing campaign that that's what everyone focuses on because it's what we all really see. And actually going inside Misguided actually showed up way more negative stuff than actually they probably intended it to. Because even Nitin said we're doing this to, in, in, I think it was a Financial Times article after or maybe the Times or something. He was kind of saying that we, we need to improve our perception. Like we've, we've gone through the, the barrel on this. Like we're at the bottom end. We have to bounce back. The show was to, supposed to do that. But actually I feel like it's just thrown up a little bit of glamorization, a little bit of fakeness. A little bit of disin- disingenuity. Did I just yeah. make up a word? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. No, no, that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just those things. I don't know. I felt like, especially the the plus size campaign. I was like, this is fantastic. This is exactly what the fashion industry needs. But that just seemed like a bit of a look at what, how great we are when actually it's not that way in real life. If that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah, but, uh, it's a very uh, negative well, approach. So no, no. So this is. I think that's 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 the whole issue really with the documentary. The fact that on the one hand. It was trying to show empowerment, but it never went deeper. It never said, okay, so you know what? We're really trying to help it with our customer base, but we have so much further to go with empowering in our supply chains. And I think actually if it could just have been a bit more honest, stopped with the glamorization, if it could just have been a bit, on every step, we don't go far enough on the environmental piece. However, this is really important to the people we work with on a daily basis. So we are pushing this. This is what we're going to start doing moving forward. Like we've done this so you can hold us to account on it. Like if they'd have been a bit more honest and open, I think it would have seemed better. But just really quickly, what I felt really interesting on the the kind of body positivity piece, what really pissed me off with that, right, was they basically were making... Um, all of their ranges available, I think up to size 24. Fantastic. Great. But what they were failing to do was take into account that actually different sizes of bodies are different shapes. And you cannot just take a top that you designed with all the fittings for a size 6, 8, 10, and then just say, do exactly that on a size 18. Mm-hmm. Because curves are in different places. Boobs come out much further. You might need a different stretchy material. You, you know, like, all these different things. You can't just then put it on a model, shove it on um, and say that will work. You've got to design the clothes for a different shaped body. It's like you can't just take um, trousers, which are for long legs and exactly the same pattern, just chop it at the bottom and give it to short legs. That's not, <laughs> not going to work. And that's what they were trying to do. So how empowering is that? Which is why they had such a high return rate on their plus size. That bit really annoyed me because I was like, yeah. if you really cared, you would be making clothes that made people feel great mm. in all sizes, even if you had to slightly change the design. Design them yeah. for those people. Yeah. I think, again, and I think this is what I would probably say with all of the all of the issues that have been thrown up on this documentary, 
the I think the reason why it's caused such a stir for me is because this is just the status quo for for industry. Mm-hmm. This is just you know there are so many brands and it's not just fashion industry that do this around tapping into you know woke ideas and not actually applying it with the level of authenticity and empowerment that is required to be successful or to actually further your brand in some way and I think it's a really dangerous game that brands of any type of industry are playing um, unless you're very confident around what that actually means for the people that you work with, mm-hmm. what that actually means for the people in your wider network and your wider stakeholders. And I think all of those issues shine, were just shone a light in this this four-part <laughs> documentary across so many. So whether it's plus size, whether it's inclusivity due to stretch marks and all of those things, it's so great on the one hand, and it really is, but it also shines lights of what does it really mean to engage on these issues mm. emotionally for the people that it is affecting? And I think um, on a day-to-day basis, and I think there's so much we can all learn from that. Yeah, really. So that's the thing. Do we actually think that the documentary coming out was a good thing mm-hmm. because maybe it's made people question things or do we think it's only made people question it if they're already slightly in the know? Does that make sense? So did it actually, because of the furore that surrounded it and some of the kind of media articles that come up, has it, do we think it's brought a light to people who might not understand that the industry has a lot of toxicness around it? Or do you think you had to know that already to then say, this is ridiculous portrayal? I mean, I, I think like your your sister's like a, a key example, right? Like we're we're a little bit older. We're not that much older, but we're a little bit older. We've obviously, yeah. Abby, you this is your background, you know things about this. We know Katie and I just from knowing Abby and knowing a brand and <laughs> obviously working in these areas and having passion in these areas. But for the average girl who's just at school, who is just trying to figure her own life out, she's probably just got her A-level results and was really annoyed at them. She's just thinking, do you know what I mean? She's just thinking Mm. like, this looks really cool. I want to go out, out. I'm going to go to Misguided because it's cheap and it's like on trend or it's on brand. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's as easy as thinking, you know, you need to have like a precursor to these issues and to understand them in any great detail, you know, and even, even your sister, you know, would she, is she going to, is she going to stop working, working? Is she going to stop shopping at Misguided because of the show? Probably not, right? She's no, probably, so, she probably still really likes the the brand. Yeah, so she actually said, she's actually just messaged me saying, I'll just read it. I liked the way there were so many women in the office slash running it. Interesting, because we've said that we don't actually see that because of the CEO and the board and blah, blah, blah. But that was her perception. Of it was a man who was CEO, but majority of workers there were women. Mm-hmm. Especially the fact it was young women who were so high up. It looked like a fun job to have. Um, I'd like to work for that company, to be fair. Only thing is, with companies like PLT, Pretty Little Thing, and Boohoo, Misguided has kind of become lost. And they're not as popular in comparison, say, three years ago. They used to be huge and have adverts everywhere, and now they're kind of fading away. So, yeah, she actually, there we go, she loved it. So, yeah. Uh... yeah. But I think that, I think, um, so through our own surveys, through other wider surveys of just fast fashion in general, I think that that is that rings true I think that's really similar anecdotes that we've heard from that segment um in terms of age group I think and it really I think this what it comes down to is it comes down to choice um Mm. and and potentially a perceived of lack of in many instances because you know again if if there's a certain price point that people are used to paying and a certain a certain need that it fulfills in the short term there there is the, why would you think of anything else outside of that if it mm. does the job that you need it to at the price that you want and i just don't think that fundamental economics is there and unless we change that and we understand that there is something wrong mm. if your dress costs less than your cup of coffee from starbucks yeah. on the way into work 
there's you know but that's the thing how do we how do we go back so if we're say we're going to a point where you know you see quite a lot now like slow fashion you get hashtag about slow fashion and all about people using vintage or things from charity shops and or buying a piece and wearing it you know 60 times plus so actually if you're doing that maybe you don't mind paying 30 pounds for a good t-shirt that you're going to love and it's going to of great quality and it's going to survive and it's actually going to last more than two wears without ripping but mm-hmm. how do I don't know if we've gone too far with clothes pricing going so far down so low that actually you're how are we going to get people engaged in that if that makes sense like it's really hard for me to sit there and say to my sister now you know what you shouldn't be buying these clothes which cost this much money you know, you shouldn't be buying a dress for 15 quid when she, her whole life has done that, if, if that makes sense. So how yeah. do, I don't know how we change the mindset to say to somebody, actually, that's not, that's not how it should be. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, no, I agree. And I don't, it's so nuanced because it really varies from obviously person to person and their relationship with clothes as well. Um, uh, but again, I think it's got to come from an education point of view mm. in the sense of if you were to plot on a graph, you know, the price of goods over the past 20, 30 years, and you look at clothing, how is clothing going down when the cost of everything else is going up? You know, there, there's someone is paying That's, for you know it what? somewhere. That is such a good point. It's so true. Yeah. Like if you brought a Freddo in the 90s <laughs> compared to the day to today you know, yeah. that is not a 10p Freddo anymore. That is smaller right? as well. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, with probably a rules and regulations around the sugar content, right? <laughs> why, why, please tell me why we do not have that for the fashion industry. Yeah. Like, this is my point around, and I think that really encapsulates, it actually doesn't need to be a conversation totally with consumers because we have massively failed at every step to get that labeling system to get that understanding of what's going on in those supply chains to get those standards in place if we had it naturally we would value and repair more you know the whole Mm. reuse repair has kind of come back around in a massive way um and places like depop you know etc the list goes on massively has been phenomenal but in order for those platforms to really exist and do well over the long term, we have to be making products that last more than two years. There is mm. no point. Yeah. There is no point. We're still just adding to the wider problem um, if we are making for a cup of coffee cost or a cup of coffee price and uh, chucking it in the bin within two years. Because no matter who had it, it it's going to break and not last. Yeah. Yeah. And then that actually stops the circular economy of then, for example, if you buy something, you don't want it anymore and you sell it on, which is a really great thing to do. If, as you say, if we're only making products that last two years, <laughs> not, not going to be able to do that anyway, probably. Um, That's it. Yeah. And you can only repair so much <laughs> when, you know, you've got rubbish materials that actually when you do try and sew them back together, they just rip apart anyway because it's rubbish yeah. material. I mean, how many dishcloths can you have? I mean, like, that was the whole thing. Like, how many, if they get to end of life and you turn it into a dishcloth, I mean, how many of those can you honestly stack up and use? I think it gets to that point as well. And I think there's being thrifty, but that's what I mean. There's a big role for everybody to play here. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, Oh, I just forgot what I was about to say. I had a question lined up and I've just completely forgotten it. Oh yeah, this was it. Sorry. So my big, my big thing that I really wanted to put to you guys was um, ultimately knitting. The CEO is always like, I want to be a disruptor in every sense of the word. So my thing when I was watching it, I was like, well, surely the, the way to be the biggest disruptor is to be an ethical and sustainable fast fashion brand. Like that would be the ultimate disruption. But then actually is that an oxymoron? Can you, can you be ethical and be fast fashion? Or actually, is that just not a thing? I feel like the, uh, the uneducated voice in my head is that you can't have both. Not yet. I feel like we don't have the, like, as, as everything we've just discussed, we don't have the incentives in place, the tax, the materials that we need, I think, to be able to be both. And I think mm-hmm. that if I, this is such a like glass half empty approach, but I feel like if you're claiming to be that type of business, unless you can, as we said at the beginning, prove it, 
with hard facts, evidence and data that you have. Slash compare ethics. ethics. <laughs> and compare ethics. Yeah. <laughs> then I don't, I don't think you can be. I don't think you can be. Not yet. Abby, I'm sure you're no better than me. <laughs> no, no. I was going to say, I mean, I, I agree. I think I do. It's obviously, I, it is, and I get this all the time, that it's an oxymoron. I get that. I think it has to come down to what we mean. If what gets measured gets done, how on earth are we ever going to get anything done with regards to this topic if we have no agreed parameters of what good looks like mm-hmm. for a start? Yeah. So <laughs> that's, that's where good. I think we just need to get to first. Let's get there. Let's get to what we're talking about, what we're saying, what we literally say. And I know that there's no silver bullet for these issues, but it is important to try and start mapping what a good business looks on these issues and Mm. and obviously as a brand you can then dip your toe depending on your usp where you'd like to lean towards so if you are all about waste you might you know focus on upcycling or circular products if you are someone who's really passionate about people you really might just start there and just focus on one area obviously over time and as you scale you know you can fold in more of these standards across the piece and I think going back to what we we're talking about earlier anyone who claims to be 100% responsible is obviously it's just not realistic it's mm. a utopia in many ways and that's why I do agree that you know it, it is an oxymoron um, but at the same time there are certain elements that I think we should look to to understand what what does good look like and I, I personally think it has to start with durability it has to start with understanding your supply chain um, if we first were to understand supply chains i.e who made your products if we could just answer that question it sounds like a really simple question but it's so big and people are so far from really knowing that um if we can start answering that, that unlocks a lot more mm. that we can do. So I think just start gathering the data is a is a starting point. And I suppose over the long term, fast fashion as a business model, I don't think as a as a business is something that would ever be able to be sustainable and responsible just simply going back to the durability piece and the life cycle piece and the amount of waste Mm. um as a model it doesn't it's not conducive to long-term systemic change of how we consume products um not to say that there isn't great opportunity for these brands to innovate um for example you know, HLMR testing out uh, rental, reuse, you know, I'm hoping that when people get test these new business models, they test out different ways of doing things and they can see that they can get economies of scales on some of these opportunities, then I think we could hopefully start to see at least structurally the way that these organisations are shaped change. And that can only be a good thing. So I really don't want to shame anyone for starting. Yeah. Um it's actually almost the opposite of that like cool we know that nobody is perfect that's fine going back to what you were saying earlier Katie it's better just to be like great we're not perfect but this is what we're doing Mm -hmm. and these are the clear science-based objectives that we're working to and this is what we're testing this is what we're innovating because we know not only that it's the right thing to do but actually you're going to be more competitive because of it and I think that's the missing thing that some fast fashion brands are not not quite realized how quickly the market can shift away from what they're doing if someone comes in with something much more appealing um which is for example the rise of reuse i don't think they're ready ready for how big that that's going to be for them that's really so i suppose just to kind of like summarize on what we've said if you just want to let a little top tips now really so if you mm-hmm. were, if you're somebody looking to buy a, as a consumer, what would be like a couple of things that you should look out for or any kind of top brands where they're doing really well on X, Y and Z that you would recommend? Um, just general advice for sustainable shopping. If you're if you're a beginner or any resources, if you're starting to look into mm-hmm. this um, and maybe if you're a business, some of the top two or three things you should be looking to do. Cool. I mean, yeah, so starting with the consumer side, um, which is really where I started, is if there is very little product information 
about that how sustainable that product is publicly and it just says that it's green I'd really be skeptical of that claim so Mm. ask that brand you know what backs up that claim um, whether it's who made your clothes if you want to know that they know their supply chain you can email them there's a great campaign called fashion revolution I would follow them they have some great tools and kits to get involved on that on the people side of things on the um on the more environmental side of things, again, it really comes down to what you're interested in. And I always say to people, if there's a certain area of ethics and sustainability that that you're quite interested in, so it might be plastic, for example, do some research. Like, what does recycled fishing nets mean mm-hmm. for clothes? What does recycled polyester mean? Is that actually better than polyester you know so just maybe start doing your own little bit of digging and research because I think if you're armed with that knowledge it's really easy to then make a better judgment at the point of sale um and I know that most of us research what we buy anyway so it's almost like having your own little mini toolkit Mm. of of when you are doing that research because everybody's got less money right now we want to part with stuff that we really love we trust so I'd say um yeah, compare ethics. We have a lot of content on certifications, what stuff is out there. So check that out. But also, Fashion Revolution is a great resource as well. Um, for brands, yeah. So I think the first thing is going back to what I was saying earlier understand your supply chain, mm. create a new strategy just to get to grips with data in your supply chain. Mm. I think one of the biggest barriers to, um, what we see is day-to-day is a lot of brands don't have the data readily available as much as they think that they do. Um, So build that relationship in with your suppliers, like ask them for, you know, more detail on how they are sourcing their practices, ask to see the wage slips, turn up unannounced, you know, do all of the right things that make it easier for you to sleep now that's a real disruptor (laughs) that is a real disruptor (laughs) yeah I mean do you know why not I mean if you're if it comes down to your bottom line and that's what we're talking about I mean look at look at the boohoo situation right so we're literally seeing now that not getting these things wrong is directly impacting bottom lines in a very big way so I think it's around not only doing the right thing but it's about managing appropriate risk in your business Mm. um which I don't think it was perceived to be um uh, you know as much so yeah I'd say just I'm not even going to give three I'm just going to leave with that one because I think that is actually a really big hard thing to do but if we just chip away over time that can be such a value opener because you can improve, you can work with different programs to help you get return on investment with that with your consumer. Mm-hmm. You can measure your impact better. Consumers love knowing the impact that they're going to have with a more sustainable product. There is so much that you can do to unlock value just from gathering data of your supply chain. But I think traditionally it's been seen as a tick box exercise that doesn't have any value. So I would challenge that. Ab. I've learned so much already. (laughs) (laughs) I'm literally going to be like a Twitter warrior now and like I'm trying to buy something. I'm just going to tweet the brand being like, so who actually made this? What is your carbon emissions? Do you have a science based target? Yes. yes that is all lovely questions maybe we need to create more toolkits of these questions that would also be great I'm sure yeah maybe we um, should do but, maybe I'm going to hold you to that Abby and we'll look we and maybe yes. write down some key questions and we'll share it with the listeners that would be good the more people ask the more brands are going to listen yeah. because ultimately they're going to be thinking well if we're getting these questions competitor A is also getting probably yeah. similar questions so yeah, let's get these questions out. Let's do it. <laughs> so again, another big thank you to Abby for joining us for this week's episode for what was a really interesting chat, I thought. Uh, the big takeaway for me was that there's actually an action for all of us as customers that we can take to kind of check up on firms and check up on the brands that we use. 
I always kind of assume that it's up to the company themselves to consider its own impact on the environment and then plan and take their own action. Whereas actually we should be the ones holding our brands to account and asking questions and getting answers on their green credentials. Consumer Um, power. Consumer power. People power, uh, which I love. So, you know, again, we didn't get to cover everything off in this episode. Um, We really just touched the surface of some macro level issues as we saw them kind of coming off the episodes and talking to Abby. We didn't get to unpick some issues and concerns on representation or intersectionality issues, um, especially what Tanya was kind of saying, that she didn't see necessarily see herself in any of the people or clothing at Misguided or, or what they put on the market. Um, we also didn't kind of touch on the potential exploitation of staff working at Misguided. So we'd love to hear from you on what you thought of the show, what your opinions are, whether or not fast fashion can be deemed ethical. So comment below and get in touch. And then do us a favour, you knew it was coming, uh, and check out the resources named in this episode and linked in the description below. Abby went through so many useful tips and tricks, so get on those. Um, Quiz yourself, as Tanisha said, quiz the brands, um, check out their credentials, check out Compare Ethics, because that's a really useful source to actually be able to do that without having to do all the digging behind the scenes, which can be really hard to see. Um, and as Tanisha said, discuss and explore the topics with your friends and family. There is so much around this that kind of was highlighted, you know, racial, inclu- racial inclusion or exclusion at Misguided within actually the sustainable fashion discourse more generally, exploitation of workers um, across developing economies um, and generally the cost of fashion, uh, the class reality that maybe some ways Misguided was empowering working class women, maybe it was exploiting them. Mm. Was there a bit of snobby around the whole thing? There's just so much. So all the issues that are raised both directly and indirectly regardless of anything the documentary has started a good conversation agreed join us again for the next step bye bye